audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our sermon text this morning comes from 2 Samuel 23, 8-10. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachemonite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So if you have a nine-year-old son like myself, I know he's very disappointed that he couldn't be here for the reading of this word and the preaching of it as well. As most of you know, Ted's been preaching through the book of James. He started a series, and his first thread that he covered in the book of James was trials, and he did a fantastic job. I cannot commend him more. This morning, I'll be preaching from this text, and what I hope to preach will be complimenting what Ted has preached on. It'll be examining what it looks like to love someone in the midst of a trial. Uh, This morning, I'll be applying this message primarily to men. It doesn't mean that I don't believe 99% of the sermon applies to women, uh, nor does not mean that I do not value women, but for the limitations of this preacher and for effect and simplicity, I'm just applying it to men. And as I go through the sermon, you'll understand why. But one thing I'd like to ask of you women, if you would, in addition to applying the sermon to yourself, would you think about the men in your life in light of this passage? Would you pray this for them? And would you encourage them in this direction as well? Uh, Being careful not to use it as a weapon. Not that you would never do that. (laughs) With that being said, let's pray. Father, I know for myself I need this sermon, and I have failed even to do this sermon this week. And so it's with humility I I come before you begging you to help me to deliver the gospel that we may all see Jesus standing for us and find our hope in him. We pray this in his name. Amen. 2 Samuel 23 is the ultimate man passage. These are the mighty men of David. William Wallace and King Leonidas and 300 have nothing on these men. When you read the whole passage, it's fascinating. The first man killed 801 battle with a single spear. Uh, the next took an army on all by himself after taunting them. The next defended a lentil garden single-handedly, knowing it was a trap set by enemy forces. And the moral of that story is do not go after a man's food. Three men, David, longingly, one day, when his, when his fortress was besieged by enemy forces, was, you know, waxing eloquent. Oh, if I could only drink water from my special well in Bethlehem. Three of his mighty men are like, we can do that. They broke through enemy forces, went to the well, drew out some water, put it in some receptacle, fought back through enemy forces to give him the water. The next man killed only 300 with his spear. He doesn't really measure up to the first guy. And then the last that's mentioned in this passage killed a bunch of bad guys. And then on a wintry, snowy day where he was kind of bored, jumped into a pit and rustled a lion for sport. After which he killed an impressive Egyptian horseman with his own spear. 
as cool as these guys are, what makes a man a man? This question begs us to ask that question. Is it his enjoyment of MMA or the NFL? I hope not. Is the sexual exploits, the accumulation of status symbols, his general likability, his ability to use a circular saw? The concept of family has lost its weight in our society. Dads are either overbearing or aloof. A good number of you are not close to your siblings. Even concepts like God as our father may be terrifying to us because of the relationship we have with our earthly father. And so when we talk about the concepts of being the family of God, that sounds more dysfunctional than helpful because we know the dysfunction of our own families. But in the midst of the chaos of what we bring to the concept of family, the Apostle Paul jumps in this conversation, and he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13, 14. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all, you, let all that you do be done in love. I remember the first time I read this passage, I remember thinking, did Paul just tell the entire Corinthian church to man up? I think he did tell the entire Corinthian church to man up. Clearly, Paul has a definition of what it means to be a man. And I think this passage we're looking at this morning begins to give definition to what it means to be a man. Among many other things that could be mentioned by many other passages, a man stands his ground and fights, even taunts the enemies of God when they threaten God's people. I'm going to say that again. A man stands his ground, even fights the enemies of God when they threaten God's people. This morning we're going to look at three simple things. The importance of standing, the problem of standing, and the power of standing. First, the importance of standing. When God's people are in trouble, a real man stands his ground. Now, can I say that? Is that too old school for me to say? Obviously, a real woman stands her ground as well. But men, do you see as your part of your identity as one who stands the ground and does not run? Years ago, I had a family member who called me, and then she informed me how she was beaten by her husband for a duration of time, but that time had ended, and things were really well now. And then I asked her, why didn't you tell me earlier? Why did you wait till things got better? And she said, well, I knew if I told you, you would have gotten onto the plane, you would have beaten him silly, and then you would have gone to jail, and I couldn't live with that. And I remember thinking about it and said, you know, you're absolutely right. Oh, um, you know, it's, there's this impulse sometimes as a man, when someone threatens those whom you love, you respond appropriately by standing towards that angst. When I was three, well, I don't remember much of this, but we had some racist neighbors that lived right next door to us in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My dad liked to refer to them as the chief representative of the Ku Klux Klan. And, and so these kids that they had, they're two older boys. They're slightly older than me. I was three, so they were probably like four and six or something. So one day I was outside in the backyard, and, and they, they really roughed me up. And, and I came inside crying. And my sister, who's six years older than me, just had enough. She went outside, and I'm not sure what she did to those boys, but she came back with a wad of their hair. And, and they never messed with me again. And actually, their parents never said a word, and instead they moved away six months later. And I remember as a three-year-old going, that's what I'm talking about, baby. You mess with me, my sister's going to mess with you. Look, these examples I'm giving are way too violent. And I think in most cases, violence is not the answer. Although in some cases, I want to reserve that option. But let's just say that family member I refer to was your little sister. What would happen if three men walked into your little sister's life and confronted and encouraged that abuser and stuck to him like glue until he changed? What would that do for that man? 
what would that do for your little sister? This is what a man does. I've used this phrase often over the last two years. If you were my little sister, if, if you were my little brother, I would have blank, 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 filled in some amazing action I would have done. And as I've looked over the scriptures and my heart and my life, I began to realize what became clear to me is these men and women I refer to actually are my little brothers and sisters. One of the beautiful things the gospel does for God's people is Jesus comes in and takes upon us himself our sin our alienation, the debts we owe to him. In its place, he gives us his righteousness. In doing so, he makes us family. Jesus becomes our older brother. We're united to him, and because he's our older brother, we are brothers and sisters. And what humbles me is I have let down my brothers and sisters consistently as I look back over my life. And so before I go any further in sermon, I need to repent for being selective of who I choose to be my brothers and sisters I need to repent for being too careful. I need to repent for self-love and desire to make my life easy and comfortable. I need this sermon as just as much as any of you do. And I have failed to man up and to be strong and to act like a man. What would happen to City Church if every man in this room took ownership of this gospel family? We can learn from Eleazar that we would stand our ground together, that we would not retreat together, that we would fight for God's people together, and no matter what the cost was, we would wait until the Lord brings about a great victory. What would, ha- what would you do if your little brother was out of work? I think if your little brother was out of work, you would do everything you could. You would use every resource you had to get him a job, to get him back on his feet, and get him moving forward. And this is why the scriptures call us to carry each other's burdens, because this is what we would naturally do for a loved one. What would you do if your little brother was depressed? Well, every day you would be meeting him, calling him, hugging him, loving him, preaching the gospel to him, pushing him out into community so he can experience some other men and women as well, and you'd be utterly devoted to him. And that's why Paul tells us in Romans 12 to be devoted to one another, to honor one another. What would you do if your little sister was drowning in debt? You'd be getting in front of her and getting in front of her the best money people you could find. And you'd be having her doing budgets and talking needs versus wants. And you'd be having very uncomfortable conversations about her spending habits. And you'd do everything you could to help her have a plan that works where she's living within her means and, and have a plan to pay off all her debt. What would you do if your sister was having a hard time exercising her faith and she was getting cynical every day? Well, you'd be getting on your knees and praying and crying out for help, begging Jesus to show up and give fresh faith and fresh repentance. You'd be getting into very deep conversations with her, and you'd do everything you could. You'd use every resource you had to stimulate fresh faith and repentance, and that's why the Bible calls us to encourage one another. What would you do if your little sister was losing herself in work? I'm not sure what you could do, but you would be chasing after, wouldn't you? You'd be finding a way to get in front of her and reminding her of a new identity source in Jesus that's so much more powerful and sustaining than her work. And you'd be helping her see the friendships and the joy she'd be missing out on living for work itself. And you would do that until she slowed down and became a human being and enjoyed the life around her. What would you do if your little sister's self-image was crumbling and she started to damage her body? You begin to notice that she's eating less. She's exercising too much. She's obsessing what others think about her clothing and her figure. 
I don't know what you could do, but at the very least, like Alice in Wonderland, you would jump down the rabbit hole with her and you would chase her down and help her and love her and massage God's grace and kindness and identity into her until she began to see who she was in Jesus and found her home there. Many, many years ago, actually before I was even a minister, I have a friend, we'll call him Dustin. Dustin was not doing so well, and there were six of us, and we came into Dustin's life, and we sat down in his living room with him. I said, Dustin, we don't know what happened to you, but here's the facts that we do know. For the last couple of months, you have had no physical intimacy with your wife, she's told us. We're your friends. We've known you for years, and when we actually think about it for the last couple of months, we haven't had any conversations with you. You're aloof, you're distant, your kids don't even know you anymore. What's going on? I don't know what's happened. I don't know how to help move you forward, but we want you to know that us six guys, we're going to stick on you like glue until you get through this. Over the next two years, the stuff that came out was horrifying. His sexual immorality, his addictions, the way he used his work and people and relationships, he was an utter mess. And I don't remember what really happened except all of us being overwhelmed and having no idea what we're doing. But we just kind of stuck to him and we did our best. And I don't think any one one conversation was monumental with him. But all I do remember is two years later, as a volunteer leader, he was leading worship in our church. And his wife and him were doing fantastic and his kids were utterly enjoying him. And we had our friend back. This is what it means to be a man. It means you don't want to weigh like everyone else. It means with other men, you stand your ground and you engage the threats of God's people until God brings a mighty victory. Marriages are crumbling, even in city church. And it's my joy to say there's men in this room who have stepped up and said, I'm not going to let you fail. There's doubts consuming the precious faith of a few in this room. And there's men and women standing up saying, I'm not going to let you fall away. See, my, my, my pleasure as being a pastor of leadership development at City Church is walking alongside men and women who are choosing to stand. And I can say with great confidence, there are men and women standing. And it's such a joy to be your pastor and to be your friend. And so my invitation to the rest of you is to stand with them, that we may see God's salvation prevail in our midst. As we see the importance of standing, let's talk about the problem of standing See, having to stand exposes our weaknesses and forces us to trust the love and the grace and the power of God. But what keeps us from standing? Well, first and foremost, there's the awkwardness and the uncomfortability of these situations that come up. And most of us hate awkwardness and uncomfortability, and we run away from them. Then there's the problem of understanding or experience. In most situations you come upon, you're going to be like me, and you're going, I don't even know how to have this conversation. What's going on here? I don't know what to do. And then there's fear of rejection. When your friends are not doing so well, and it's an opportunity for you to stand with them, you might have to be rejected by them to get through to them, to love them. And there's the self-absorption. If friends, if folks in your life don't make it obvious and ask for help, we're way too busy and self-consumed to be concerned with our own self to notice what their issues are. And then there's issues of emotional and physical fatigue. We run so fast and so hard, we're tired. We may not be enjoying the grace of God ourselves, and we feel like we have nothing to give. And there's a lack of confidence that comes from that. Who am I? What do I have to offer? I'm not really wise. What would I even say? And then there's general emptiness. I don't have much going on with me and Jesus. I'm weak. 
I'm not good to myself, much less anyone else. How can I be of use to my friends? And then there's fear of failure. I could be wrong. Actually, I know I'm wrong. I could be right, but then botch all up by how I handle the situation. Then your perfectionism kicks in. I need to do this right, or I don't really want to do it all because I don't want to botch this up. And then you don't want to hurt anyone, and then you don't actually want to lose face or look stupid so we don't get involved. And then there's time. Uh, many in this room are middle class, we're upperly mobile, we're just getting things done, and we have so little margin, and we don't want to give that margin to loving folks. And then really, ultimately, it boils down to freedom. Uh, one of the reasons we don't want to engage is because we don't want to turn what we're doing for someone into a relationship where we actually have to be counted on. Distance is extremely comfortable. Relationships are hard to manage and very uncomfortable. Relationships mean communication has to go both ways. And the last thing we want is further pain, frustration, and complications. Now, this is my list for why I don't love and stand. This is me being honest with you. What's your list? What keeps you from standing or the problems that muck up your ability to love your neighbor. See, when you run, you're saying Jesus has no power here. When you run, you're saying you are alone. When you run, you're saying that the gospel has nothing to do with this moment or problem. When you run, you're saying the Holy Spirit cannot bring power and transformation. When you run, you're saying he cannot use your foolishness, incompetence, and weakness to do a mighty work in another person's life. When you run, you're saying that your lack of reserves is greater than his power. When you run, you're saying that he cannot possibly bless you or transform you through loving your brother or sister. When you're running, you're saying that you know how better to spend your time than he does. When you're running, you're saying that preserving your self-image is more important than knowing God's grace and seeing his faithfulness in your life. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who came to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. When you run, you're saying that Paul is a liar. See, when you stand, you're saying that Jesus is with you and that he's enough. And when you actually stop running and look at yourself, you begin to see who you really are and where you struggle to believe the gospel. Hear me on this. If you want power, you have to own and understand why you do not like to stand. For us to continue to move forward in the beautiful things God is doing in this church, for the city to be engaged with the gospel, for the gospel sing in our midst, for men to be men, we have to see why we don't stand. But that's not where we stop. There's a power for standing. Eleazar, he stood his ground, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. The gospel tells us an even greater story. In the beginning, God created man to be with him, and there was perfect unity and fellowship. But humanity rebelled against our God, and the enemies of God came sweeping in. Sin we became our own authorities. We began to define freedom for ourselves, which led to death and alienation in every realm of our life. Whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, sociological, we've seen death and decay and alienation, and it robs us all of joy. And there was no man to stand for us, no man to clean up the mix, mess, no man to fix the horror of our situation. And so God himself became man. The Father made a pact with the Son and the Spirit, and the Son freely gave himself, and he became a man for us. And then he came, and he lived beautifully, 
righteously, loving everybody in his path perfectly. And that righteous one stood on the cross for us. And on the cross, he took upon him the sins of all his people, and he was cursed for it. And justice and wrath and judgment was put upon him. And on its place, since all our sin and wrath was put on him, he gave us his righteousness, his beauty, and he made us gorgeous before our Heavenly Father. The Lord brought about a great victory on the cross. Because not by the sword, but by the death of the Son, he canceled the power of sin and death. And now Jesus invites you to stand in him. He stands ready to give us absolutely everything. You see, when we stand in him in weakness, he's like, here's my righteousness. It's all yours. I want you to see every day how your father in heaven is the best dad in the world. And he picks you up and he says, you're my boy, you're my girl, and I love you and I could not enjoy you anymore. He wants to stand in us. He wants to stand in him so we can see his wisdom. That day by day he may give us his eyes, his lenses to see the world and enjoy the realities that he has given. He wants us to stand in him that we might enjoy right now his strength. And that in our weakness we may see his power flowing through our veins and bringing redemption and change into the world. Jesus is a power source ready to change you now. And he invites us to stand in him. Let me put it another way. Paul said this in Ephesians 6, verses 13 to 14. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buck around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place. And it goes on and on. You see, you can't stand alone. The scriptures understand that. If you try to stand alone, you'll fail. But when you stand together as a legion, you become a deadly fighting force. Why? Because it's so much easier to stand together. Only when we see that Jesus is not running but standing for you on the cross and in his life and resurrection, standing for you over victory and sin and death, do you get the power to stand yourself. That's only best experienced in numbers. Imagine you're part of a deadly fighting force of the Roman Empire and a gruesome band of, I don't know, I should have thought about this. Barbarians, that's what happened in history, was coming at you. Your knees are going to buckle. You're going to be afraid. But if you look to your right and left, and the man who's carrying his height-sized shield, the shield that actually protects you, is standing firm and strong like an oak, it helps you to stand. You look around, and your men are with you and for you, and they're standing. It helps you stand because it helps you as you stand together to see that Jesus is the one standing with you over you, for you, before you, and behind you. You see, in our weakness, we can lean on him, and he will give us everything we need to stand in the battle. And that's the beauty of the gospel. To man up is to see that you're weak and to stand together in Christ. And in the midst of that, Jesus gives you everything to stand until he brings the victory. As we conclude, the story ends with two options. Option one is second-handed glory. The troops return to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. For all the men that ran away and left Eleazar by himself, they won. The Lord had brought a great victory. They returned to the field, and the victory was theirs. They're on the winning side, but their experience of it, their pleasure of it, was muted. They get to walk around the field stripping the dead of loot. And that's the experience of many of us who are in Christ. The victory is Jesus's. 
We are in him. He has given us everything. But we're so reluctant to stand that we're watching others enjoy the glory. And we are in the kingdom. We will enjoy inheritance with Jesus forever. But our experience of it is muted because we're on the sideline and it's all secondhand. The other option is greater glory. It's firsthand experience of the grace of God. We can be like David and Eleazar and taunt the Philistines and stand our ground. And when we think we're going to be overrun, watch the grace of God show up and work through us and bring a mighty victory. Like Paul, we can learn to taunt sin and death. Like Paul, we can boast in our weaknesses. Like Paul, we can see the Son of God standing for us. Like Paul, we can see him use us to bring comfort to his people. We can stand together and watch God bring salvation over and over and see him bring great victories in the midst of our weakness as we stand together. And I can say this, nothing is more satisfying as a man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we can be quick to see how we fail to stand and to be men and women rooted in your grace and kindness and power and strength. And that can horrify us and depress us. But what we need eyes to see, Lord Jesus, is how you stand for us. And that standing for us is never, never contingent on how we stand. Father, give us eyes to see how the victory is ours, how the battle is already won how you stand for us and your grace is sufficient for all our woes. And right now in the midst of our weakness, you are ready to give us everything to help us to stand together in you. Give us eyes, Lord Jesus, to see that power, that might, that love that you have for us, that patience that we might find our home there and experience your grace and kindness firsthand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.